Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. For this podcast, I got to sit down with theatre maker and writer Jodie O'Neill and talk through her play, What I Don't Know About Autism, a beautiful beast of a production that explores, challenges and captures the complexities at play on the autism spectrum. Jodie talks about the reasons for writing the piece, forging an acceptance of autism, celebrating autistic identity. We go on to discuss how we talk about difference, dispelling the myths, debunking presumptions and the need to shift the perception of autism in the media. Less violins and more power ballads. Jodie goes back, way back, to the foreign country of 80s and 90s Ireland and tracks the signs that had no markers, the tribe that had no helpful language and recounts in her own words the alternative route that has led her home. Enjoy this podcast. Um, Jodie O'Neill, it is the morning of the opening of your show, What I Don't Know About Autism. The previews have been electric. The show has gone down so well. That has got to help with uh, opening night nerves for tonight, does it? Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, I think with this cast as well, they're going to be the, the least antsy cast I've ever worked with in relation to an opening night. And I think my feeling is that the opening night might be a little bit strange because the audiences that we've had so far are a very mixed, very diverse group of people, some of whom have a connection with autism, some of whom don't. Like last night we had 17 teachers in from one school uh, who had all decided to come to see it as a group. So we're not going to have those people tonight. So it'll be a very different night. I think it'll be a really, really supportive audience. And I think hopefully we'll have a, a really exciting show, but probably they'll be less personally invested in the subject matter of the play, I guess. So they're kind of more coming to see it as a piece of work. Yeah, it does feel different every night. You just don't know who's in that audience and who will ask questions because within your show, you have these incredible sections in the production where you all come out of character and you stop the show and you ask if anyone has any questions. And the questions that are asked are like direct and and some of them are curveballish. And that is not an easy job for you. But there is something brilliant in those sections that diffuse the energy in the room. But it's certainly not easy for you up there. Yeah, it's funny. I love it when we get to the first question time because the, you know, the first couple of scenes are quite short. And actually, it's I love it once we get past scene four and into the stimming section because that's just really fun for all of us. And then you're kind of doing that with the knowledge that actually you're going to get to chat to the audience because when they come in, they're an unknown, really. So we talk to them at the beginning, but they don't really talk back at the beginning, apart from uh, the lovely fellow who thanked us the other night um, so that was really nice but you know we don't I feel like I feel like when we get to the question time it's a real um, kind of levels the playing field in a way you know and uh, I feel like there's an excellent exhalation in the room yeah. you're like oh, okay yeah. and they're like oh well we don't have to pretend we're anything and we're not pretending that we're anything so we're just people in a room trying to figure things out as best we can and luckily my fellow cast members are extremely generous with their answers and with their commitment to doing something like this which I guess potentially could be like a really risky thing but I think because we set up really strong rules around it uh, which we sometimes break um, then I think it's it's less of a it's less of a risk you know it's kind of a contained risk which is best kind and I love the title of it um, it's so honest and open-ended what I don't know about autism and you answer so many questions within the production and you bust so many myths 
What's the biggest myth you want to dispel with this production? I suppose the biggest myth I would like to dispel is that there is one singular thing that is autism. Because um, as Dr. Stephen Shaw says, and as we quote in the play, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And I know I, I feel it, you know, in, in personal experiences where somebody will say, OK, so somebody's autistic. Oh, they must love their routines, do they? Or they must hate shopping centres or I don't know, there's like a whole bunch of things that people think um, must happen if you're autistic. So it's kind of getting rid of that for one thing. And I guess getting rid of the idea of um, autism as a deficit and starting to look at neurodiversity as something to be embraced and as something potentially very creative and um, necessary. You, you certainly celebrate it within the show. Um, you celebrate the difference. What do you think we're getting wrong about aut- autism? Is it our attitude to it? Is, is there a, this fear around it, the stigmas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, And totally. how can we get it right? Um, get the media to stop saying that autism's a tragedy, I think would be a big start. Um, I think I probably said this to you already, but uh, one of the first things that I read when we were trying to figure out whether to tell our son about his diagnosis, how to tell our son about his diagnosis, was uh, picking up the Irish Times on a Saturday, opening it up. Maybe it wasn't Saturday, it probably was, if I had the paper in the house. Um, and uh, and so th- and there's a headline uh, which states in really big, bold, black letters, no parent wants their child to be diagnosed with autism. And as a parent, that's really crushing. And at that point, my son could read. So if I was to tell him that he was autistic and he was to read that headline in the newspaper then what's that going to do to him um, as a person and what's that going to do to his soul to be made think by the media that his parents don't want him to be the way he is and we've never wanted him to be anything but the way he is so I think one of the first really big things is to shift the way that media portrays autism I think there's a huge issue with that you know and There are some great documentaries that have come to light in the last couple of years, but they all play this kind of like tragic music underscoring. And it it just reinforces that myth that autism is something that we have to be sad about rather than something that we can make little shifts in the world uh, in order to accommodate, in order to make it an asset. So I guess it's, you know, based around that idea of the social model of disability whereby people are not innately disabled, but it's the circumstances and the world that they find themselves in that isn't built to accommodate their needs so that's a really important thing for us um, to shift perceptions about in the show. I, I think it might have come up in one of the talkback sessions in that a lot of people didn't realise they were autistic or had autism until someone else told them you know and they're plodding along in their lives and you know mm. they're unique in their own way what does a diagnosis do for you? You had a late diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Can you talk me through how all that came about? Yeah, so I had a diagnosis last year. Um, so I was 39 by the time I was diagnosed. And I think some of the people in the play were talking about, you know, being in their late teens or early 20s. Um, I think I can only speak from my from my own experiences, but I think it kind of gave me a map 
through which I could retrofit the experiences that I've had during my life. So for me, it was a very liberating and um, it was like a weight coming off uh, to realise that I wasn't just inherently bad at certain things. Um, and also to kind of go, well, it's all right to see the world uniquely because I think um, as a child, I had a, an enormous sense of freedom and we grew up in quite an alternative community. So we grew up in Cove, but we were blow-ins. So um, we, and in, in Cove, if you're a blow-in, you're a blow-in. Like we wore hats, nobody else wore hats. Um, and that was a really strange thing that set us apart immediately. And so we went to this um, Church of Ireland school. We were raised Catholic, but um, it was the only mixed school and my parents really believed in co-ed uh, schooling. So we went to a mixed Church of Ireland school that had, I think at the time I was there, about 28 students in the whole school. So there was two classrooms. One was junior infants to second class and one was third class to sixth class. And we were largely... I mean, we were just a really eclectic bunch of people. Um, uh, a lot of people whose uh, parents would have come from Holland during the time of the dockyard in Cove and uh, people whose parents had moved from different places who were working in Irish steel. We had like some of the Rajneesh um, people were in our class. I don't know if you watched those documentaries um, on Netflix, but the people who dress in red and were part of that cult. Yeah, they, they were in our school too. So um, difference was really embraced. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And so I think like me and my siblings were always really different, but my parents were really different as well. And we were surrounded by a community of supportive different people. And um, so up until the time I was 10, I didn't really think very much about the fact that I liked to dress in black skirts and uh, waistcoats and always had my hair in a bun and always read a book while dancing uh, along the street. And, you know, people looked at that a bit oddly but it really didn't bother me and then I think you know at a certain point hormones kicked in and I was like I just so desperately want to conform now and I really want to be the same as everybody else and I really want my parents to be the same as everybody else and we're failing miserably at it like we were really poor at um at um what's the word beginning with c conforming conforming that's the one thank you um but who wants to conform all of that sounds you know Almost like I, I would aspire to, to want to be like that, to to celebrate that difference and yeah. to be that kid that dances along the street with the book mm-hmm. in hand. I think, but I think the world crushes you after a while, you know. So I think you get to a point where you start to listen to what people are saying about you. And, um, and what are they saying? Are they saying, are, are they are they clicking in their mind that, Oh, that little one, she might be on a spectrum or like, is this a vocabulary that's around yeah, you or no. is it just that you're, you know. Yeah, I mean, vo- it was the late 80s, early 90s. So it was just weird. I didn't have a visible intellectual disability or anything. I was just weird and I was feeling it profoundly. And so I think from then until probably when I left home was a really difficult period. And uh in retrospect, it might have been easier with the diagnosis, but it actually it could have been harder at that time as well because the level of understanding and acceptance, and it was said last night at the talkback, you know, things are different now than they were in 2014. So they're really different from how they were in 1990 um, to 1997 when I would have been kind of in the latter years of primary school and uh, secondary school. Yeah, so sorry, that's a really long-winded no. answer to your question. I really like rationalising things. That's just part of who I am and... 
it's like being handed a rationale for your life and for your experiences. And that's a very comforting thing. But actually, it's also um, made me go, well, I'll just take those risks now that I wasn't really taking before. So I think even in my writing, I probably would have tried a bit harder, maybe, you know, seven or eight years ago to write a proper play. Um, whereas writing this play, I had no intention of writing a proper play. You know, I was going to write what I was going to write. And uh, that's been the case with most of the stuff that I've written recently. And it's all the better for it, I think. I so hope there's so. a liberation. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And say going to college, what was the college experience like for you? It doesn't sound as if you're mad that those markers may have been missed in your early childhood. And I know there's so many creative people who identify having autism. Did it help your creativity? And then going to college, was that an easy experience for you? So I went, first of all, to do like single honour English in Trinity. Um, but I left that after a year because I just was, I was 17 and I was like, going, Dublin is great, but I don't want to be in college and I'm going to waste all my years of uh, free education. Um, so I did a couple of things for a few years and then I went back to do um, acting studies at Trinity in, I think I was there from 2000 to 2003. It was tricky. It was really tricky because a lot of that thing of going to acting college is about the deconstruction of yourself. And at that stage, I already had like 10 years under my belt of disguising who I was. Um, And so I really wasn't at a point where I was ready to unpick that and, you know, put myself in that kind of vulnerable state. And I had a fairly like crippling anxiety about, you know, improvising or things that weren't scripted and you know, if I had a script, then I was fine. And if somebody was telling me what to do, then I was fine. But I didn't know what to do with um, free time. Um, unstructured time was really problematic for me. So, yeah, it was an interesting couple of years. And I think I, th- I think the fact that I was so guarded meant that I didn't really, you know, I had um, one or two really, really close friends in my year, but I didn't really fit the the general, like, you know, acting student uh, vibe. So I um, I worked in a restaurant all throughout that time. And that's kind of where I met most of the people that would be my really close friends now came through that working experience. And, you know, it's a perfect environment for an autistic person because you go in, there's always something to do. Um, You have a very structured way of communicating with your colleagues and you have a script for how to communicate with the customers. And really, you know, there's minor levels of deviation from that. But um, but it's it's a very uh, was a very happy place. To, uh, to find myself for three or four years. And so the college experience didn't deter you so from pursuing, uh, because you, you have worked in the industry for 20 years now as a yeah. writer, a director, and an actor. Um, I'm conscious now, do you think, I, 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 like, I know we're talking about a show about autism and all I keep, all we're talking about is autism. So I'm conscious that I, I keep bringing it back to it. Yeah. But has the, Do you think the diagnosis, uh, do you think you could, as an actor, be defined by this diagnosis from here on? Yeah. um, I mean, I guess so. But I would like to credit people with um, maybe seeing that as an asset rather than... And and I think I'm probably a better performer now than I was. Maybe, well, certainly better than I was 20 years ago when I came out of... um, is your guard down Acting college now? I think so. I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to know, isn't it? But um, 
I think I have, well, you have a lot to lose when you come out of drama school at the beginning. Um, and I had some great experiences working with TIE companies and things like that. But, um, you know, I think I was even told in my, you know, that you have these consultations um, during drama college where they sort of tell you how they see your future career going. And, you know, my mind was like, ball. well, you know, you're never going to be in the Abbey, are you? Um, and you might make your own work, but um, you're not really that Abbey style of um, actor. And, you know, uh, I took a very long, circuitous route to get here, but... In your face. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, they were all lovely people, but I, d- I wasn't, you know, I wasn't that person. And I don't think there's such a thing as an Abbey actor anyway, because, you know, the people who perform here are extraordinarily diverse. But yeah, I don't know what will happen going forward, because actually, I think as... Uh, parent anyway this industry is a really tough one and because me and my partner both work in it we have some fairly big decisions to make about um how to make it work and how to make it work for us as a family because thankfully um, my mum has bailed us out and several friends have bailed us out on this but it's a scramble it's good to be going into something kind of going well I hope that the people who come to see it are not Oh, all the industry people who could give me jobs. It's actually more, I hope the people who come to see it will get something from it that helps them win their life uh, with the people around them. Um, And that's already been happening and kind of anecdotally through people saying it's the first time that they've experienced something positive about autism since maybe their child's been diagnosed or getting diagnosed themselves um, or speaking to people about how they might pursue a diagnosis as an adult. That's really what matters with this show and much less about the kind of career trajectory. Well, you can see how important it is to people when we do these talkback sessions and we give it maybe 20 minutes. And then, as you've noted, and I witnessed last night as well, that there's those those few minutes after the, the session has ended and then there's this swarm of people that approach the stage in a really, you know, almost the queue to talk yeah. to you afterwards and just have, to have a quiet word mm-hmm. about something they couldn't say out in the open of the auditorium. Um, and, and that's why this play is so important because it's it hasn't been done before. Uh, those those voices have not been heard on, on the Abbey stages before. And actually you have made history by having the first fully relaxed performance here at the Abbey and it's been a, a long time coming. Uh, but And in that, could you explain to those people who may not uh, know what they're coming to see this week mm-hmm. and, and for what a relaxed performance is? I think a relaxed performance can be can be lots of things. You know, it can be a performance of an existing work, like, for example, with a pantomime or something like that, where pantomimes are, are generally loud and chaotic, where uh, they try and uh, relax the chaos a bit. So maybe not turn the house lights down, maybe turn the sound down, uh, maybe send out a visual guide in advance uh, so that... Um, children who might have anxiety about coming to see a pantomime uh, can say, oh, they know what that costume looks like in advance. There's, uh, they know what the story is going to be. There are no frights in there for them. Um, so I suppose we've adapted that process to try and make a relaxed performance for adults. Um, and because of the nature of the show, I was able to write it as a relaxed performance. So the relaxed performance element is written into the script and obviously we've developed it and changed it and added things in as we've gone but um, I guess the essential things are that people aren't stuck in the theatre once they come in so there's no rule about um, patrons who leave the theatre will not be readmitted we've taken that away they will be readmitted if they need to take a break they can that's absolutely fine they can come back in again 
in order to facilitate that and in order to faci- facilitate people who might be uncomfortable in complete darkness, the house lights are left on a little bit throughout. Um, like we talked about a little bit before, there's no real, you know, there's sometimes a fourth wall, but it's not very real. And we have the freedom, you know, if we mess up to say to Hannah, who's operating our captions, oh, Hannah, do you mind if we go back to where we went wrong there because we've messed up the lines? Or, you know, we have opportunities to talk to the audience um, during the performance. We warn of, um, so there are some loud noises and there are some um, dramatic lighting changes, but we let people know in advance when they're going to happen. Nobody's asked for them yet, but we do have ear defenders there if if anybody wants to wear them during the performance or for the loud parts. And I think a really big part of it is just saying to, you know, a very law-abiding, traditional theatre-going audience, everything is okay here. You don't have to shush people. You don't have to police it. We're okay. We're comfortable with people making noise. We're comfortable with people stimming or having vocal tics. And I think I experienced that really profoundly, actually, in a in a disability service where I did my first ever relaxed performance um, of a different piece. Um, and it was written for one of the service users at that adult um, day service. And what happened was that everything was very tense at the beginning. And as soon as I said, you know, if people are making noise or moving around, please don't feel like... Um, you need to shush them or something along those lines. Um, All the staff relaxed. And with that, all the service users relaxed as well because there wasn't the air of them having to behave or conform. And it creates a really nice atmosphere to perform in. And I hope that for audiences, be they neurodiverse or, or not, that it creates a probably different, but I hope it's a comfortable experience for people. Yeah, I think you have created a comfortable and relaxed environment. Um, we were talking last night about whether the audience were comfortable or not with those question times, and some some of the responses were that they some people had a burning desire to ask a question, and once and if they hadn't had gotten that opportunity, it would have been kind of burning away with them the whole thing. So it was great just to for them to be able to express it, and then they can just relax from there on. Yeah. And it's lovely, like we've had just some lovely interactions in the middle of the show with audience members. Um, Yeah, it's very encouraging and motivating to get through the rest of the show, knowing that people are kind of on your side. Because I think, I don't know if this is the same for everybody, I presume it is, but you know, sometimes when you're doing a show and the lights go down at the beginning and you've no idea who your audience are and how they feel about it, you have this running narrative in your head of like, oh God, they really don't like this. Oh, it's not going well tonight. And it can it's nothing to do with anything. It's only to do with yourself and how you feel in that moment. But in this play, we have the ability to check in with people as we go. And that's a really nice thing. There's a mix of um, factual and, say, fictional accounts in there. Did you feel a weight of responsibility to uh, not come down too heavy on one side or the other? Or whether that's about, you know, treatments or supports for family with autism? Because... Um, because it is so personal to so many of you mm-hmm. and to so many people in the audience. Is there a sensitivity there? Yeah, I mean, I guess there is a sensitivity, but there's also, like, you can make a really bland piece of theatre about autism by not coming down on one side or the other. And a really safe one. Personally, I do come down on one side. Uh, I wasn't prepared to hide that in the show. I think, you know, it hasn't gotten us into terrible trouble so far but I also think it's important it's important to talk about these things it's important to have debate around these things 
Um, and I'm not saying we have all the right answers and that what we say is true. Like, not not that it's not true, but, um, you know, I, I've kept the I in the title because it is very much my opinion. And uh, I never planned on being in the show originally. But I also then went, actually, you kind of have a responsibility to be there to talk to people. Because if you're saying to somebody... Uh, who's maybe been working in a particular job for 20 years, well, actually, maybe this is not the best way of doing it, then you kind of have a responsibility to be there to talk to them afterwards and say, this is why I think that, um, and just to start those conversations. And, of course, people have a right to make the decisions that they make, but I just want to put it out there that, I guess, in relation to the therapies that some of the highly recommended therapies here um, are not necessarily the ones that have supported autistic people in the past. You mentioned uh, your son was mm-hmm. diagnosed with autism. Well, actually, getting that diagnosis, what did that change for you and what path did that lead you down? I assume it has led you here as well, but in terms of treatments and listening to professionals and maybe not listening to professionals. So, so yeah, so the first thing that we were told uh, was to get an ABA therapist and start intensive early intervention as quickly as possible. And uh, we, you apply for something called a home tuition grant, which entitles you to, I think, about 20 hours a week of tuition. And then you have to um, try to find in the world somehow uh, the right teacher for your child. So it's a pretty random and arbitrary search that you go on in the first couple of months. And... Uh, we didn't find an ABA teacher, and so we found Sorry, somebody. What does ABA stand? So for? ABA um, stands for Applied Behavioural Analysis, and it's about um, teaching uh, a child or an adult to perform a task for some kind of motivation or reward. So, for example, if I was going to teach you to, you know, go to the bathroom. Uh, it's, you know, I would dangle a sweet possibly in front of you and after you went to the bathroom, you would get that sweet as your reward. Um, and the idea is that gradually you would um, withdraw the incentive and that the, the thing becomes habitual. The issue, I suppose, with it, so basically I went on and I decided to do a course myself in ABA and there are some, you know, it's it's quite a natural thing that reward for completing something is a I guess a valid system but I think rewards wear pretty thin after a while and also I think what you're teaching somebody to do is not to do something because they need to do it you're teaching them to do it for some kind of arbitrary catalyst and uh, so and then as I began to research it further there were a couple of people who said to us in the beginning you know maybe just have a look at what you're doing before you you know put your son in an ABA preschool or find an ABA tutor And so we kind of stumbled our way into the autistic community and started to read and really quickly started to realise all the very negative impacts that ABA therapy has had um, for autistic people. And uh, and it also became like super clear that it wasn't going to work in our house anyway, because um, all that happened was when we kind of uh, tried to introduce uh, you do this and I'll give you this was... uh, I was hoovering downstairs one day, so it was loud in the house. And I 
didn't hear anything from upstairs for ages. And then my son came down and he brought me upstairs and he lined up his best toys on the windowsill. And uh, he's like, I have to show you these. And uh, I said, OK, great. He's like, do you like those toys? And I said, yeah, they're excellent toys. He's like, do you really like them? Would you like them to be yours? And uh, I said, yeah, I guess, you know. And he's like, well, if you just stop hoovering for five minutes, they can be your toys. So uh, so there was no way it was going to work in our house. We were just going to get ABA'd into being like really (laughs) compliant uh, parents. I remember one thing that was really eye-opening was I went to a course, I think it was like three Tuesday mornings, um, that were run by the AAA Alliance in Wicklow, a family support group. And they were run by a psychologist called Davida Hartman. And Davida had left the HSE to set up her own practice. And she was the first person to say to us, start looking at the anxiety. Um, So start looking at the anxiety and how to alleviate the anxiety rather than actually to teach behaviours. Because if somebody's not anxious, if somebody's comfortable then of course they are teachable and of course they're more likely to be, uh, you know, uh, able to fulfill um, what's required of them. So that was really eye-opening. And then from there, it was just, yeah, a a gradual one book leading to the next book, leading to the next, leading to the next, and starting to go to conferences that really did embrace neurodiversity. Um, and, uh, And then as an artist, I just went, okay, well, this information needs to be out there because it's not what people are being told generally in Ireland at the moment when their child is diagnosed. I was reading just this week that you had written this beautiful article for the Irish Independent and within it, like the play itself, you answer so many questions about this subject and I wondered would you mind reading it? Because when I read it I hear your voice but it encapsulates so much of the journey that has brought you here. Would you mind reading Mm -hmm. it? Yeah, of course, no problem. When did autism become part of our lives? I suppose you could start in 2016, when my partner and I sat with a psychologist who told us that our child met many of the criteria of being on the autism spectrum. How did we feel? Mostly relieved. At that stage in our naivety, we felt that we were now in the safe hands of professionals who could open the door to the services that would help our son to overcome the anxieties that were getting in his way. And more than that relieved because he was still the same child. Now we had a concrete explanation for why some things had been difficult for him. We had clear advice and pathways to access support. Nothing else had changed. So you could start in 2016. Or you could go back a little further. You could say it all started in 2015, when we realised our son wasn't navigating social situations in the way we had expected him to. Or even further, Christmas 2014, We went with friends to see the switching on of the lights on Grafton Street. The overcrowded bustling event culminated in a huge bang and an explosion of confetti all over the street at the exact moment the lights switched on. My son couldn't get out of there quick enough. For the rest of that Christmas, he struggled to be in the same room as a Christmas tree, which made family events a little awkward. Only nine months later was he able to explain to me that every time he was in the vicinity of twinkling festive lights, he was sure they could explode at any moment. Can you imagine the terror and confusion? Everyone laughing and celebrating, seemingly unaware of the imminent danger only he could see. You could rewind further to a two-year-old who thinks round objects exist primarily for the purposes of arranging them into solar systems. You could look at two solid years of wakeful nights, a baby that must have been tired but just couldn't stay asleep. Or you could start right at the beginning, 
when at three days old our baby was rushed to hospital in an ambulance after choking during a feed. At the time, looking at my helpless baby turning red, looking at him, looking to me for help, all I could think about was saving him. Now I can see that his motor skills, even at that early point, were atypical. His swallowing reflex at birth hadn't fully developed. So you could say that autism arrived in our lives in 2012. Or you could continue with this journey back in time. To a 17-year-old who's leaving home, heading off to college weighing just five stone because she's taken a year off from eating. Recent research suggests that one in five females presenting with anorexia may also be autistic. To a 16-year-old who discovers that alcohol is what's been missing all these years and holds the key to social skills. To a teenager so afraid of stepping out of line, she copies everything her best friend does, right down to changing her accent in order to fit in. To a nine-year-old who wants to become a communist and defect to Russia to join the Kirov Ballet. A small girl on a tour of Photo House who exists in utter terror, having been told by the tour guide that due to the size of the group, they are going to split you all in half. A preschooler with a fear of water so bad she won't leave the house in the rain without a hat on her head. Or in a pinch, as discovered by an aunt who is in a rush to get to the supermarket, a pair of knickers. A toddler who weeps solidly every time her mother leaves the room. Another baby who just doesn't feel the need for sleep. And of course you could keep going back. Once you know the right signs to look for, the presence of autism is clearly identifiable right back through the generations. But let's look forward again, to that afternoon in 2016, in a private clinic. Private because we had been advised that we'd be waiting three years or more for our son to be seen through public services. All this talk of the importance of early intervention, and we could expect our son to be at least seven before he reached the top of the waiting list. To 2017, 2018, years passing and still no sign of any supports or assistance through the public health service. To a torrentially rainy evening in June 2019, when I'm sitting in a waiting room on Pembroke Road. Soon I will see the psychiatrist who will officially confirm what I already know, that I too am autistic. I should have realised this a long time ago, but it's taken me 39 years to get there. When our son was a baby, a toddler or a preschooler, I put his differences down to the fact that he was in many ways just like me. His differences were things I could remember, could fully empathise with, although he was a lot more vocal than I was about expressing his discomforts. So when the idea that he might be autistic first arose, I dismissed it. He was simply my son, and I wasn't autistic, was I? And then after his diagnosis, something fortuitous happened. We went through the various therapies suggested, attended various practitioners, completed training courses, and realised that they weren't helping. Looking for answers, we found our way into the autism community. We stumbled across Amethyst Shaber's series of videos, Ask an Autistic, and from there to a huge volume of digital content and literature by autistic people voicing their personal experiences. We found our way to a support group, AAA, and from there to As I Am. The more I learned, the more I realised. Autistic people are the people we need to be listening to, and their articulation of autism resonates beyond my son's experiences to my own. Looking back, would I change anything? Absolutely. I would unread every book and article on parenting that I ever read. I would ungo to the toddler groups, playdates, and social groups that cause nothing but upset. I would ungoogle everything I looked up in the time before seeking a diagnosis. I would never compare my child to another child. I would take back the brief period of time we invested in trying to teach our son to make eye contact, as if that was the key to a successful life. 
I would listen to my wise friend, who told me several years before I accepted it. He's just a non-conformer, isn't he? And I would take back any efforts I made to make him conform. I would play more, laugh more and worry less. And the list will keep growing. Because that's parenting, isn't it? A big messy cluster of fear, hope, anger, guilt and more love than you'd ever have imagined feeling. What would I not change? Our autism, even on more difficult days, even in the midst of fears for the future, I would never want to take away the fact that we are autistic. I will continue every day to accept my son as he is. I will seek out the therapies that support him and I will reject those that try to change him or make him more typical. I will support his growing independence by encouraging him to develop the areas of his many special interests. I will teach him to advocate for himself and his needs. I will advocate on his behalf whenever he needs me to. I will listen. I will try. Sometimes I will succeed. Sometimes I will fail. When I fail, I will try again. I've written what I don't know about autism for two reasons. One, to promote autism acceptance. The idea that we don't need to fix autistic people. We need to adapt the world to better accommodate all its citizens. And two, to celebrate autistic identity. Because I think that's something worth celebrating.